Well, thank you. Um, it's uh, not the first time uh, jokes have been made about my name. I, I do play the bass guitar, so you can imagine the number of jokes that have been made about that. Um, it is a joy and privilege to be with you this morning. Um, can I just... I don't want to... Can I have a uh, yeah, what a joy and privilege it is to be with you this morning. Um, my name is Clark, as has been said. Um, I, four weeks and one day ago, married the most amazing person I know. And that is by far the most important thing you need to know about me. Um, yeah, but some other information about me. I, uh, six and a half years ago, I think it is now, uh, I moved from South Africa to the UK. Um, so if you're a bit confused by my accent or can't hear or understand what I say at some stage, I blame it on my South African heritage. Uh, as a matter of interest, who's ever been to South Africa? Let me see some hands. A good, healthy number. That's good. Um, I hope those are good experiences. Otherwise, <laughs> this is a little bit awkward. Uh, um, so yeah, I've been in the UK for six and a half years. Uh, I was part of a church which was called LCI at that stage, and then has moved to Kingston and at the same about five years ago, I think. Uh, and then we relaunched ourselves and called ourselves Kingsgate. Uh, so we're another church that lives and operates out of Kingston. And uh, one of the things I've loved, I, I, two years ago, two and a half years ago, I started working. I stepped onto the eldership team. And I started working full time for the the church. And one of the things I've loved so, so much, one of the things I've appreciated so much is uh, getting to know some of the, the, the other churches, some of the other church leaders in Kingston. And some of the, one of the things I've, I've just loved so much is getting to see how much the different leaders are for each other, that the churches are for each other in Kingston. We're not like kind of all trying to one-up each other and trying to steal from here, steal from there. But uh, that there's a genuine kind of love and affection for each other of the, in the churches in Kingston. Uh, and it's such a privilege to be a part of that. Uh, I started getting to know Philip quite well a few, f over the few years because I guess he started working uh, with Kings at a similar stage to when I started working at Kingsgate. And so it was quite cool to have some discussions of him and I kind of bouncing off each other in a similar stage of life in some ways. Uh, we play squash together often, uh, which uh, he has been beating me recently. Uh, so I might try and get it back today when like, he's not around and I can say what I like in his absence. Um, but I'm really, very, very fond of Philip and I, I do appreciate the opportunity to speak today. He asked me, he said that I think, as I understand it, you guys are going through Acts at the moment. Is that correct? Uh, he gave me the option to either carry on going through Acts or to do something else. And I've, <laughs> I've elected the, the latter and kind of just going to do something different. And what I'm going to do is I'm just going to preach essentially out of my devotions earlier this year. Um, I was going through Matthew, and what I'm trying to do at the moment is I'm really trying to get better at my devotions, for lack of a better word. Uh, uh, it's so easy, as you'll know, uh, if, you, if you've ever kind of tried to had, have devotions for an extended period of time, in terms of like months and years. It's so easy, I think, for it to become like a checkbox thing that you do, either in that time of the day. For me, I, I need it in the morning, because otherwise the day runs away from me. And it's so easy for it to become like a checkbox thing. And I, over the last six to eight months, I've just been going, God, help me to revolutionize, change the way I do this, that I would, in those moments, be meeting and communing with you, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, the one who has created all things, the lover of my soul. Let me meet with you in intimate ways in these times. And so I'm, I'm trying to open the word and not just kind of get through my X number of chapters or whatnot, but really asking God, come and speak to me. 
I love studying the Bible. I love studying the Bible. I know that's kind of some people is their preference and other people it's not. Uh, but I love like studying the Bible. Uh, I'm studying through Vineyard Institute at the moment. Um, I, I love listening to debates of interesting thoughts of different kind of parts of Scripture. I love like really trying to understand and study and read in the context of a particular letter or part of the Bible. But, but what I need to protect with my own story, with my own journey, is I need to not only study the Bible, but I need to create moments and times where I allow the Barbie, Bible, <laughs> the Barbie, <laughs> Allow the Bible to study me. Uh, allow the Bible not only uh, f- have moments not only where I read the Bible, but in a sense, allow moments where the Bible reads me, where, where I, I sit vulnerably before the Bible and say, God, would you speak to me? Would you challenge me? Would you shape me? Would you mold me through your word? And unsurprisingly in some ways, uh, the more I'm asking God to come and speak to me, the more he's speaking to me. And uh, I share that maybe just to kind of preface where this comes out of, but also to encourage you in your, your journey. It doesn't require any degree or certificate. It requires a humble heart and love with Jesus, asking for him to lead and guide you and speak, to be, speak with you. So this is a message that's just out of my devotions. It's essentially a simple gospel message, uh, something that for me was uh, refreshing and life-giving, um, kind of just personal revelation that something I saw in the scriptures as God spoke to me. I did preach this at Kingsgate last week, and uh, I believe that Kings, you guys weren't meeting, I think, because of the soccer race, if I'm not mistaken. And so there are a handful of Kings friends that were at Kingsgate last week, and so it, those of you will have to listen to it the second time. I did warn you, I think I see Becca who was here, there last week. I did warn you, so it's a good sign that you're back for a second <laughs> dose of the same. Um, But yeah, I do hope it's helpful. I do hope God speaks to you this morning. I'm going to be preaching out of Matthew 26. Uh, I'm going to be reading a a good, healthy portion. Uh, I'm going to be reading much more than the books will advise that you read and preach. (laughs) I'm going to be reading 30 verses. Uh, 30 verses from chapter 26 of the book of Matthew. Um, Essentially, there's three different stories that I want to look at, three different kind of little scenes or vignettes, I think is the word. And I want to, as I read this in my devotions, I just, uh, as I saw the three stories together, I saw a pattern and a thread and I felt God say something to me and I'm going to talk about that today. So let's start with uh, the first, the first scene. Let me tell you what the three scenes are. Uh, One second, let me, before we get there. So if you're just turning to chapter 26, that's great. Let me give us a bit of a preface. Have you ever, don't don't have to raise hands. When I did this last week at Kingsgate, people started raising their hands. Please don't don't answer these questions. Have you perhaps ever made a promise to God? Perhaps like in the beginning of the year, first few days of January, made a, a big decree, a big promise to God saying, God, I will be this. I will do this for you, only later and often very soon before even January has seen itself out. You've, you've let him down and you've broken your promises to God. Have you ever broken your promises and then found yourself in that state of knowing before the God of gods, the creator of the universe, you made a promise and you've now broken that promise and, and, and sat with that feeling? Have you ever perhaps had, found yourself in a moment where you you, haven't, you know that this has not been a good day. This has not been for you a good week, a good month, a good year, and you're trying to deal with this. The Bible, there's a famous poem called The Dark Nights of the Soul, at least talks about the dark nights of the soul. 
Have you ever found yourself in that moment when you, you know you're in the dark nights of your soul and you don't know how to respond? You don't know how Jesus is going to respond to you. You feel shamed, uh, shameful because of the situation you're in. I want to today, I want to answer, I want to ask two questions and hopefully we'll be able to answer that by the time you leave. And I want to solve a mystery. I want to, the two questions are, how does Jesus respond to me? Sorry, the first of the two questions is, how does, this, how does Jesus respond to me? How does Jesus respond to you when I let him down? When I make those promises and then break those promises? When I perhaps choose comfort or convenience before him? When I, in moments of weakness, when I, I let my heart's affection perhaps run or, or, or walk slowly or quickly away from him? Perhaps when it's, it's too tough or difficult or confusing for my heart to be for him and I let my heart wander. When the, in those moments when the lure of the deceptiveness of wealth, the deceptiveness of riches have found themselves uh, hooked into my soul so deeply. How, do, how does Jesus respond in those moments? In the dark night of our soul, how does Jesus respond? I hope by the end of today you'll be able to answer that question. And secondly, how can we respond in those moments? After we see Jesus and how he responds, what are our options in those, in those deep, dark moments? How can we respond? And then the, the mystery I want to solve is how can we sum up the gospel, not in three minutes, not in two minutes, not in a few sentences, but in one word? No, that's quite a, a challenge. How could, if you were asked to sum up the gospel in one word, I hope today you'd have a way, an option of doing that. So we have two questions and a mystery uh, that we want to solve. We have our three uh, sections, our three little scenes in Matthew 26, which we're going to jump into. The first is the Last Supper. The second is the prayer in Gethsemane, the prayer in the garden. And the third is the ultimate betrayal from Jesus. Sorry, from Judas. Ultimate betrayal from Judas. So let's start reading. Uh, 26, verse 26. Now as they were eating, Jesus took bread, and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, Take, eat, this is my body. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink of it, all of you. For this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for, the many, poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it anew with you in my Father's kingdom. And when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. And Jesus said to them, You will all fall away because of me this night. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd, and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. But after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. Peter answered him, Though they all fall away because of you, I will never fall away. And Jesus said to him, Truly I tell you, this very night before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. And Peter said to him, Even if I must die with you, I will not deny you. And all the disciples said the same. So that's our first little scene that we're going to come back to. First, having uh, communion, or what we know is communion in the Last Supper. Then they sing a hymn, and then they go out to the Mount of Olives. And, and Jesus says, You're, You are going to leave me. You're going to desert me. And we have Peter's response. Let's move to the second story, the second little scene. Then Jesus went with them to a, scene, to a place called Gethsemane. And he said to his disciples, Sit here while I go over there and pray. And taking with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, he began to be sorrowful and troubled. 
And he said to them, My soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch with me. And going a little further, he fell on his face and prayed, saying, My father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. And he came to the disciples and found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, So could you not watch with me one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. Again, for the second time, he went away and prayed, My father, if this cannot pass unless I drink it, your will be done. And again he came and found them sleeping, for the eyes, their eyes were heavy. So leaving them again, he went away and prayed for the third time, saying the same words again. Then he came to the disciples and said to them, Sleep and take your rest later on. See, the hour is at hand, and the Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. So that's our second little story, our second scene that we'll come back to. Jesus praying with his disciples in this heavy, weighty moment. Uh, in, a, in a vulnerable moment, he speaks to them, asks them to be with him. And they fall asleep, and we have him going back and praying. Moving on to the third part of the story. While he was still speaking, Ju- Judas came, one of the twelve. And with him a great crowd with swords and clubs from the chief priests and the elders of the people. Now the betrayer had given them a sign saying, The one I will kiss is the man. Seize him. And he came up to Jesus at once and said, Greetings, Rabbi. And he kissed him. Jesus said to him, Friend, do what you came to do. Then they came up and laid hands on Jesus and seized him. And behold, one of those who were with Jesus stretched out his hand and drew his sword and struck the servants of the high priest and cut off his ear. Then Jesus said to him, put your sword back into its place, for all who take the sword will perish by the sword. Do you think that I cannot appeal to my father and he will at once send me more than 12 legions of angels? But how then should the scriptures be fulfilled that it must be so? At that hour, Jesus said to the crowds, Have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs to capture me? Day after day, I sat in the temple teaching, and you did not seize me. But all this has taken place that the scriptures of the prophets might be fulfilled. Then all the disciples left, left him and fled. What time? I'm sorry, Andrew. What time did I start? Okay, cool. Let's examine these three little stories, these three little scenes, and see what we see in common. Firstly, we have the Last Supper. This was an incredibly weighty moment. And I think as we skim over the pages of Scripture, we can miss the weightiness of that moment. This, what they were doing was, it was, what to them was called the Passover meal. It was an annual tradition that was thousands of years old. And what it included was a meal, but in that was food, drink, and specific words that all together uh, was a way of them immersing themselves in a specific story and making that story very real and relevant to them and helping them remind themselves of the various details. What they would do is the most senior person in the room would say the specific words, introducing different parts of the meal, and that together would tell the story. The story was one of God delivering his people, being true and faithful to his promise, delivering his people who were under slavery in Egypt, God breaking into that situation, redeeming and restoring them and as they passed through the desert into the promised land. It was about God's promise being fulfilled 
in the, through the Exodus. And uh, so what they had, they had the food, the drinks, the, and words that were carefully chosen to all the various elements would express and symbolize various aspects of the Exodus. For example, they had bitter herbs that would symbolize the hardships that they suffered under, uh, when they were in slavery in Egypt. Can you imagine what that was like in those situations? How the story of God's faithfulness must have felt so real. Not like just a story that you read, but you kind of immerse and engross yourself in the story. And what Jesus does in this passage um, is Jesus completely revolutionizes the Passover meal. It's still a story about God's faithfulness. But he says, while what we're doing is, historically this tradition has been about saying, uh, there was a promise that God made and fulfilled, and was full, He was faithful to that promise. But Jesus changes everything up, and we won't go into much detail about that, but what He does is He changes everything up to say, I am making a new promise today. Instead of eating the lamb to represent the old promise, He says, I will become the lamb. I will become the sacrificial lamb. And so instead of pointing towards an old promise, He makes and declares a new promise to God's people. And Jesus is now the future of the story, the future of the promise. And in the future, God's faithfulness is found in him through his death and resurrection. And then what they do is they sing a hymn, and then they go out to the Mount of Olives. And can, can you imagine them? They must have probably felt in some ways quite chipper at that moment, uh, quite kind of unified, quite enjoying their time with Jesus. And in this moment, he turns to them and tells them that they are going to leave him and desert him and deny him. Jesus foretells that they will desert him. And of course, we have Peter, who's incredulous in this moment. He, he says, no, Jesus, this will never happen. I will, maybe they, I love how he says this. He says, maybe they, these other guys. It's not like guys he doesn't know. They've been hanging out for like three years. And he's like, these guys, they might leave you. They might desert you, but I will never do that, he says to Jesus. Remember those words. I'll come back to that at the end. They might leave you. They might desert you, but I will never do that, he promises. And so in this scene, we have an interesting kind of contrast. We have two promises made. One by Jesus pointing towards, it's a new promise of Jesus' faithfulness. Saying, I'm going to go to the cross. And we have Peter's, Peter's promise, which we know is to be a fickle one. And uh, we know where these two, the threads of these two promises lead. We have Jesus' promise, which leads him to the cross which leads him to give himself, to fulfill the promise he made in going and walking to the cross. And then we have Peter's promise. Very kind of paradoxically, we have Peter's promise, who very shortly, he breaks his promise and de denies and deserts Jesus, and we have the rooster crowing three times. I love the kind of tangible aspect to these two promise, as it promises. As I was reading it, you, it's, it's almost like as you're reading it, you see the Last Supper and you see God saying, look, taste, see, and hear of my faithfulness. As we eat and drink and you hear of the story of this new promise. Taste, see, and hear of my faithfulness. And then you have this very tangible expression of the rooster and the rooster crowing. And it's also almost as you read the story, you see God saying, see and hear humans of your faithlessness in this moment. And there's this incredible juxtaposition. There's this contrast between God's, Jesus' faithfulness and man's faithlessness, Peter's lack of faith. Let's move on to the second story. In the, this is the prayer in the garden in Gethsemane. And as I was reading this and reflecting on this, I saw a similar contrast. I saw a similar juxtaposition. 
Can you picture that moment? They're in the garden. It's early in the morning. They've had wine. They've had a big meal. And, and now this is probably the early, early hours of the morning. And Jesus takes them to this garden and, and asks them to pray with him. But this isn't just any moments of prayer. This is now Jesus in his darkest, darkest moments. This is, this is for Jesus the most terrifying thing he's ever looked into. The terrifying thing he's facing. He says the words, my soul is very sorrowful, even to death. In this moment, Jesus is sitting with his friends, his loved ones, and he's honest, he's vulnerable, he's emotional. And he's asking his closest to stay with him, to support him, to pray with him. And he said, he's already said that he's not going to eat or drink again. He's saying, this is the moment. This is when it's all going down. There's no big, long story. It's all going down now. And it's a weighty, incredible, incredibly vulnerable moment as we see Jesus with his disciples. And, Jesus, and, and in Jesus' moments of great need, his disciples, his friends, we see in the story, they fall asleep. And it's so easy just to gloss over that. But can you picture the pain for Jesus in that moment? They're given in many ways to the comfort that they needed. They're given to convenience in that moment. They're obviously tired. It's the early hours of the morning, as I said. And there is a real desire of their flesh. There's a real desire of their body to just go to sleep and to fall asleep. And they have this, they have this option to be faithful to Jesus and sit with pray and pray with Him. Or do they give in to the, the, what's comfortable, what's easy, what's convenient, the desires of their flesh in that moment? Jesus, on the other hand, is having a similar wrestle. Jesus is kind of having this wrestle with the Father as He, as he prays with with his father. And he could have in that moment, in some sense, he could have refused. He could have changed the plan and said, no, 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 I'm changing everything. And I, I refuse to go forward with the plan that we have agreed with. I, he could have said, the, the pain that waits me, the, the, the discomfort, the dissatisfaction that awaits me, I, I can't go through with. Bear in mind that what was waiting for him in the cross, we can it's so hard for us to always remember the, the crazy amount of pain that was waiting for him. The word we have for excruciating comes from the same root word as crucifixion. And he, he knew about this. He knew that this was awaiting him. And yet he chose to be faithful in that moment. He chose to deny the comforts, deny what would have been easier, deny what would have brought him most physical satisfaction. And he chose to be faithful in the most extreme sense. And so again, we have this contra contrast between the disciples and the Jesus. Will they be faithful or will they give in to the comforts and the basic desires of their flesh? Let's quickly move on to the third story. In the third kind of vignette, the third part of the story, we have uh, the ultimate betrayal by Judas. This in many ways is as I, as I said, as I understand it, is like the pinnacle of man's betrayal. This is the pinnacle of man's betrayal. This is our, collectively as humankind, in some ways, this is our very greatest moment of treason, of faithlessness, of betrayal. And we have Judas in this story. And Judas was uh, from people who, who were on the outside wanting to get Jesus. They needed someone on the inside that would provide Jesus in a, in a vulnerable situation. And so Judas provides him in, at night when it's easier. There's no people around or let fewer people around. 
and uh, when he's outside of the city. And as I was just reflecting on this, thinking about it, I thought how it's grievous enough, but the story is made so much more grievous by the fact that this betrayal happens under the false pretense of a kiss. The false pretense of a kiss. The betrayal under the facade of love and, and affection. It, and as I was thinking about that, I got like angry with Judas. I was like, how can you do this? Not only are you betraying Jesus, not only are you this ultimate moment of betrayal, but you do it through the pretense, like making it look like you're all nice and you're loving Jesus. How, how horrific could, how, this is so terrible. Judas, how could you have done this? And I felt God speak to me in that moment and, and ask, get me to ask a question. I felt God saying, does my singing, perhaps in worship, does, does my worship ever remind Jesus of that kiss? Does my religious activities ever remind Jesus of that kiss? Does my preaching ever remind Jesus of that kiss? Is all my kind of religious song and dance before him and before others, is that sometimes just a picture, a, a facade of love and service, but actually it's just a fake mask that is clothing a heart that is far and distant from the great lover? And uh, maybe you see some of that for yourself. Maybe, because friends, it's so easy in some ways. If, you, if you're a regular churchgoer, if, if you're in relationship with Jesus and have been for a while, it is so easy to fall into things just looking good on the outside. It's so easy for my worship. I mean, grab a guitar. I, I'm leading worship this evening at our church. It's so easy, for, I'll be honest with you, it's so easy for me to stand up there and make it look like an amazing set of worship. But what is my heart doing behind that? Does that in that moment, it is tonight, as I lead worship, is that going to remind Jesus of that kiss? Does on the outside look wonderful and religious, but on the inside my heart is wayward and disconnected and not moved by love and affection for Him? If you want a, a litmus, tense, litmus test, perhaps, uh, for whether your actions and religious actions are that, ask yourself the question, how do you respond in moments when you're overlooked, when you're not thanked for something you did, or when someone else is blessed who seemingly doesn't do, hasn't done, have you ever prayed this prayer like, God, uh, I am the one in the office that is honorable and presents you, and I am the good Christian in the office. Why does this person get the blessing? Why have you overlooked me and you blessed this person? Some awkward chuckles. <laughs> Why at church? I, am the, I do this so well, but I get overlooked, and no one's thanked me for this. If you're asking those questions, perhaps your, your service, there's an element of it being a little bit like that rotten, deceptive kiss from Judas. Maybe there's an element of you serving yourself and not him in those moments. Let's go back to Jesus and, the, and how he responds to Judas. In some ways, the crux of this passage is how Jude, Jesus responds to Judas. In this moment now, think about all that's happened. Think about, uh, you've got the disciples in this moment, we've got the disciples who have made promises to Jesus that he knows they will break. When they've let him down in his greatest moment of vulnerability and need. When they've capitulated to their basic needs and their basic fleshly desires. When they've chosen comfort and rest rather than compassion and reassurance. When they've been selfish and secretive and abused Jesus' trust. When his disciples have acted in many ways as his enemies. When Jesus has received a rotten, rotten kiss, kiss 
smelling of death and deception. When Judas has become the ultimate traitor, the ultimate deserter, the ultimate betrayer, in this moment, how does Jesus respond? How does Jesus respond to his disciples? How does Jesus respond to Judas? And in many ways, how does Jesus respond to us in our faithlessness? In verse 50, he responds to Judas and he says, Friend, friend, do what you came to do. In this moment of three stories of the people around him, and as I looked at it, you can kind of see every part of the society is represented in some way. Everyone has been faithless towards Jesus. And in this moment, where in many senses he would have been right to respond to Judas and call him, you traitor, do what you've come to do. You, you evil one, you wicked, deceptive one, come and do what you've chosen to do. But in this moment, he doesn't reject Judas. He still identifies with Judas in this moment. And he says, friend. This gives me so much joy and pleasure. As I know I've let him down, as I know I've deceived him at times, as I know sometimes my actions are that rotten, deceptive kiss. He who deserved to be treated by Jesus as his enemy is treated as his friend. Friends, this is, in some ways, this is the totality of grace. This is the gospel. This is it as best I can in this verse summed up in one word, friend. That Jesus would respond to Judas in this moment as friend. Maybe you see yourself in some of these stories. I certainly see myself. With broken promises. Where I've, I know time after time I've given into the flesh. Sometimes just basic desires of the flesh. My selfish, selfish desires. Moments or seasons where I've allowed my heart to wander from God where there might have been a pretense, a facade of Clark's doing all well and he smiles at everyone at church and greets everyone in happy days, but behind that in a season or a moment or day, or a heart that has wandered from him, not moved by love and affection for who he is and what he's done. A heart that perhaps is distant from God. Maybe you feel like that's you today. Maybe you feel like that's you in the past. But I can promise you all of us will one day feel like that in the future. We all have our ups, we all have our downs, and we all have those moments where we feel and know that in this moment I don't deserve His goodness, but receive it anyway. In those moments, the joy, the beauty of the gospel is that He calls you, He calls me friend. The one message I want to leave you with, in those moments when you feel like you've let yourself down, you're not who you wanted to be, you've done all these things I've talked about, in those moments, if you're in Christ, if you have given yourself to Him, no matter what you feel like in that moment, Jesus calls you friend. In that moment, if you, if you run towards God, if you, if you approach Him with bent knees and wet eyes and a, a humble and open heart, you don't find an accuser, but you find a savior. One of the things I love about the gospel is that my relationship with him is not maintained, is not determined by my faithfulness, but is determined by his faithfulness. What I, what I love about this is that these three stories <laughs> remind me 
of our faithlessness again, our faithlessness again, our faithlessness again. But the beauty of it is Jesus' faithfulness again. Jesus' faithfulness again. Jesus' faithfulness again. Friends, don't pretend that you deserve his kindness. Don't pretend that you deserve his kindness. You and I don't ultimately deserve to be called his friend. If you for, if you for some reason feel like this, the gospel doesn't amaze you, Maybe, maybe you think back to when you were at uni or years gone by and you think of how you used to sing songs that, and that would just move you and amaze you. Maybe you've forgotten about the beauty and splendor of that you don't deserve to be called friend and yet he invites you and offers to you friendship with the creator. I love this. I found this this week in the Ragamuffin Gospel, which is a, an amazing book and very much related to this topic. The writer says, many of us pretend to believe we are sinners. Consequently, all we can do is pretend to believe we have been forgiven. As a result, our whole life is pseudo-repentance and pseudo-bliss. That means is that if you're living like, I feel like this should be more joyous. I feel like the Christian walk should be more blissful. But perhaps some of that is that you don't see the depth of what you deserve and yet what you have been given. Your faithlessness and yet Jesus' beautiful faithfulness. And so I said there's the two questions I want to answer and the, and the summary of the gospel, the mystery once solved. The two questions, the first one is how does God respond to us in these moments? As I've I hope we've seen that in our low moments, in our dark night of the soul, we find a savior, not an accuser. We find one who reaches out to us and calls us friend. Calls us friend. And then what about our response? And in some ways, this is the application for today. What is our response in those moments when we find ourselves in those places? Well, I think in the story, we see two, two different options. We see Judas and we see Peter. Both people uh, faithless in this story. And we see different ways of responding. We see Judas, what a sad story. Even with Jesus, and I believe in some ways there was, a, there was an invitation to, Jesus, to Judas by the way Jesus calls him friend still. He hasn't rejected him. He's, he, there's still open arms. There's still an invitation to him. And yet he goes and hangs himself. And the, the other option, we have Peter. And as I mentioned earlier, there's the story of the rooster. And after that, he, he, he responds with a contrite and humble heart. It says he w- goes away and wept bitterly. He accepts Jesus' forgiveness and then walks in it. Sarah and I was, this week started reading Acts together. I think it's Acts 2 or 3, where there's this incredible story later on after Jesus has redeemed and restored uh, Peter back to what God wants him to be. And he's now walking not in his own strength, not in, in trusting his own faithfulness, no longer saying, don't worry, Jesus, they might reject you. They may desert you, but me never. No, no, no. By this stage, Peter's got to the stage where he's like, I, I can't trust my own strength. He looks back and he remembers the rooster. He says, no, I, don't, I can't trust my own strength, but I've seen Jesus. I've seen his faithfulness and I trust that. And in Acts 2, Acts 3, we see Jesus walking in that strength, in that power, and in that authority. Friends, it takes daily courage to turn your face to him and not from him. In those moments where we feel shameful, where we feel like we shouldn't be called friend, it, it can be horrifying. If, if you know that Jesus isn't some little 
Father Christmas, that if you know that Jesus is the creator of all things, it can be hard sometimes to, to, to cast your face back towards him. But it takes courage to know that he, he's standing there with an invitation, with open arms, ready to welcome you back and call you friend. It takes trust that God is good and is who he says he is. And it takes an understanding of our identity being built in his righteousness, not our own. Do you guys know the song uh, Cornerstone by Hillsong? I love the last verse in the chorus. I'll read that out. When he shall come with trumpet sound, O may I then in him be found, dressed in his righteousness alone. Dressed in his righteousness alone. Faultless stand before the throne. And the chorus is Christ alone cornerstone weak made strong in the Savior's love through the storm He is Lord Lord of all the gospel in many ways summed up in one word so He calls us friend when we don't deserve it when we ought not to be called something else He calls me He calls you friend could I pray with us quickly that'd be alright Let's pray together. If, if you, Father, I, I thank you for this truth. I thank you that you, Jesus, have been so, so wonderfully faithful and kind to us. I thank you for this kindness that no one in this room deserves. I do not deserve your kindness, Jesus. And yet you are so, so kind. You call me friend. I know this is unmerited, undeserved. But this is the beauty of the gospel. This is the wonder of the gospel. Jesus, that you are who you say you are. That you are in the business of redeeming and restoring all people. And that you're an incredible Savior. That as, as I return to you, as I, as I in boldness and courage cast my face back up to you, you are there with a warm smile calling me friend. God, I pray that this truth would sink into our hearts today. I pray that everything that is of you and what I've said would seek deep into our hearts today. Maybe for those of us today who find ourselves in those moments, we would be reassured and encouraged to be able to turn back to you even today. And for all of us who will one day again find ourselves in those moments, God, Give us the courage, give us the strength to know who you are in those moments, to know what you're like and to know the beauty and majesty and splendor of the gospel. That you would welcome us back again and again and call us friend, that you call me friend. I love you, Jesus. We love you, Jesus. We thank you for your kindness and we thank you for your faithfulness to us. We pray these things in your beautiful, beautiful name. Amen.